We'll go to Psalm 6. We'll be in Psalm 6 tonight. I was looking forward to Zephaniah, but the portion we're going to cover next is an entire chapter, and uh, it's a little bit more involved information-wise. I don't want to do it with a strained voice, so I thought we'd take a little detour tonight and do something a little bit easier, a little bit shorter. We're going to go to Psalm 6 instead. When you're there, go ahead and stand with me as we read the scripture. This is a psalm of repentance written by David. Verse 1, O Lord, rebuke me not in thine anger, neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure. Have mercy upon me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are vexed. My soul is also sore vexed, but thou, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord, deliver my soul. O save me for thy mercy's sake, for in death there is no remembrance of thee. In the grave who shall give thee thanks? I am weary with my groaning all the night. I make my bed to swim. I water my couch with tears. Mine eyes consume because of grief. It waxeth old because of all mine enemies. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity, for the Lord hath heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord hath heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. Let all mine enemies be ashamed and sore vexed. Let them return and be ashamed suddenly. Father, we ask you to bless your word this evening in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. This is a penitent psalm written by David. Nobody in history could repent like David could repent. Um, if you could put repentance into a word picture, you would see, you'd be David's prayers of repentance. It's a psalm of David, although we know very little about the background of what the circumstances are. We don't know what sin preceded this psalm. We don't know uh, really at what point in David's life this happened. What we do see here, though, is a good bird's eye view of true biblical repentance. In fact, at certain points, we can draw visible lines between true and false repentance from this psalm. Let's start in verse number one and kind of work through the psalm. He says, O Lord, rebuke me not in thine anger, neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure. It would seem from this opening line that God had not yet begun to correct David for his sin. From that, we can take away this is not... The sin that David committed when he numbered the troops of Israel, we know that because that came under severe judgment from God. We know this is not his sin with Bathsheba, as that came under severe punishment from God. It was repented of in Psalm 52, 51. I'm sick. It's there somewhere. Is it 52 or 51? No, no. 51. Thank you, 51. My head is swimming. I apologize. Psalm 51. But here, David is begging God not to punish him. There's an important point I want to start off with here. God is patient with his people. We mentioned that last week in Zephaniah. God is patient with his people. Uh, God is not sitting in heaven, waiting, hoping that we mess up. Just hoping to just crush us like an ant with his thumb. That's how some people view God. Some people view God that way. Uh, I have somebody in this church who comes to me sometimes and says, 
Oh, pastor, uh, I don't do this as much as I should. Do you think God's punishing me for that? I don't do this as much as I should. Do you think God's punishing me for that? I said, God's not just sitting in heaven and waiting to punish you. He's not hoping you mess up so he can exact punishment. That's not what God does. That's not how God operates. God is patient with his people. The moment you and I sin, God doesn't immediately go, that's it. Boy, Amy's going to get it now. Can't believe she did that, right? No, God's patient. God doesn't want to discipline. God wants us to come to him on our own and repent of the wrong that we've done. See, I don't want to have to search out my kids' wrongdoing. I want them to come to me and be able to tell me, hey, I did this, I did this, I did this. The more questions I have to ask to uncover what happened, the more angry I get because I shouldn't have to have a full-scale investigation. God gives us room to come to him and repent. Discipline only comes into view when we refuse to repent. Such as David with Bathsheba. What a good example, right? David went on for probably months in that sin before he was called to repentance by Nathan the prophet. He refused to go on his own to God, and so God had to come to him. And even in that, we see God giving David room to repent. So it seems clear that whatever sin happened, David is coming to God before that discipline arrives. And this is why I say, church, keep short accounts with God. Don't make God come to you in sin. Come to him. If he's coming to us, it's gone on for far too long. Uh, most scholars I've read about the incident with David and Bathsheba would say it's anywhere from five to six months between his initial sin and somebody even as long as nine months from his initial sin uh, into uh, when Nathan the prophet confronts David. It's a long time. It's a long time to go on and sin. Keep short accounts. Don't make God come to you. Go to him. He gives us room. He gives us space to come to him. He's a father who wants us to come and confess our sins. The moment you sin and realize you sinned, you should be confessing that to God. That's your moment of confession. The minute you realize, I've sinned against God. The moment we realize, oh, that was wrong. That was wrong. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have thought that. That's the moment you drop to your knees and say, God, forgive me. That wasn't a right thought. That wasn't a right word. That wasn't a right action. I shouldn't have done that, Lord. Forgive me. I confess it. I'm, it's wrong. I don't want to do it again. That's the moment you do that. When you don't keep short accounts with God, what happens is, is it emboldens us to go on and sin. You know why? Because you know what? I sinned and God didn't do anything about it. Maybe I can sin a little bit more. He won't do anything about it. And then pretty soon, what are we doing? We're pushing that line further and further and further. Look at David, right? Well, you know, I had the, uh, had the affair and God didn't strike me dead. Maybe if I just get rid of her husband, it'll be okay. Would David have been so bold in killing Uriah if God had just immediately punished him? Probably not, right? He was emboldened by God's patience. Don't take God's patience as an okay with your sin. 
Well, God hasn't punished me yet, so he must be okay. No, no. Patience is not, what's the word for? It's not acceptance. It's not, God's not okay with your sin or my sin because he doesn't act immediately to punish us. He wants us to be convicted of our sins. He wants us to come to him ourselves and confess those sins. And when we don't do that, we, we become emboldened. Sin is a deceiver. It deceives us to think, oh, we're okay. We're okay. I know a lot of people who are professing Christians. And because God hasn't come down on them yet, oh, God's okay with the way we live. We're okay with God. No. Or God provides for us, so therefore he must be okay with our lifestyle. Or Things always work out, so God always... No, that... Listen, God blesses those who are just and unjust, by the way. Don't take God's blessings and say, oh, he must be okay with what I'm doing. You know who else thinks that? Every word of faith preacher sitting in his $900 million mansion today. Well, God must be okay with what I'm doing because after all, look at the way I'm living. No, no. Sin is sin. God's discipline is intended to draw us back into fellowship with him. If we will come first, then it becomes unnecessary. God doesn't have to discipline us if we will come and confess our sins first. Notice in this verse, we see a lack of entitlement, don't we? David doesn't feel his coming first automatically gets him off the hook. True repentance never makes demands of God. True repentance never makes demands of God. There's no entitlement here. Oh Lord, he says, rebuke me not in thine anger, neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure. There's humility in these words as he pleads with the Lord not to punish him. He knows God is just to do it. He's basically throwing himself at the mercy of the court. God, you have every right to judge me. God, you have every right to... Listen, we don't come to God to confess our sins to get ourselves off the hook. Okay, now, God, I confess my sins so you can't do anything about it. How often do we do that? Let's be honest. I'm in a fight with my wife, and she knows it, I know it, and I'm going to apologize because I don't like fighting. But that's not true Repentance. I'm trying to get something out of it. Instead of acknowledging that I'm wrong with no, with no, uh, no strings attached. Or you're, you're, maybe you're, you're at odds with somebody. You have a strained relationship. They've sinned against you and they come and they say, uh, well, I'm sorry. And so now you have to just forget everything that's happened because I said I'm sorry. And they feel entitled to just walk. No, you, you, don't, you don't get to make demands if you're truly repentant. Your repentance should be, you know what? You have every right not to forgive me. You have every right not to get back into a relationship with me. You have every right not to be my friend again, but I'm asking you please to forgive me. That's true repentance. David is coming to God and saying, God, please don't punish me in your displeasure. Please don't chasten me. He's not making demands. He's throwing himself at God's mercy. God, I know you have the right to do this, but I'm asking you to have mercy on me because of my sorrow over my sin. True repentance acknowledges God is right to punish sin. True repentance will never say something like, um, it's not fair 
It's not fair to punish me. I'm confessing it. You can't punish me. He knows that any punishment would be fair, but he's pleading for God's mercy. True repentance seeks mercy. It makes no demands. If your repentance to God is ever... What's the word I'm looking for? False repentance on the surface of it is repentance to get yourself out of trouble. That's false repentance. I don't want the consequences, so I'm going to say I'm sorry and help myself. True repentance doesn't help yourself. True repentance acknowledges you're wrong and that the person you've wronged has every right to be mad at you, but you're pleading with them not to be. It never makes so whereas David's not confessing his sin to God to get himself off the hook. David feels truly sorry for whatever sin he committed here. He truly hates this sin. He truly hates himself having committed this sin. And he tells God, listen, I know you have every right to punish me, but I ask you not to. I ask you not to. Verse 2, have mercy upon me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are vexed. David is so grieved over his sin. He's in physical pain over it. Have you ever done something so bad to someone else that you were physically ill when you thought about it? I have. It's a horrible feeling. It's a horrible feeling. When you wrong somebody, you don't even know my situation, but I, I wronged somebody one time and one of the worst possible ways I feel like you could ever do to hurt somebody's feelings. And at the time I did it, you know, I was thinking only of myself. And when I realized the gravity of what I had done and how it hurt that other person, I, 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 I'm telling you, I almost threw up. I felt so physically ill. And even now, uh, 20... In a couple of weeks, it'll be 24 years since it happened. 24 years on Valentine's Day. And when I think of it, I still get a queasy feeling in my stomach. How could I do that to somebody? I was so wrong. That's how David's sin makes him feel towards God. He was physically ill. He, I'm so disgusted with myself. I'm so sick of my sin. He says, my body hurts. I'm physically ill because of it. He probably hasn't eaten since his conviction fell upon him. He's weak. His bones are vexed. Listen, I'm not saying every time you sin, every time you let a curse word slip at the cashier at the store, you should get physically sick over it. But I'm saying... If we're truly repentant over our sin, that sorrow should probably bring about some physical ramifications too. We should probably feel it here in our bodies. If we're truly, truly upset about it. I remember Corey Tinboom relating a story once where she had so hurt somebody. She had said something that was offensive. She had sinned against them in some way. And she said she sat up all night. She couldn't sleep. 
until she could make it right with that person. She was so grieved at what she had said, how careless her words had come out. She stayed up all night. She, the next day she was tired, physically sore from sitting up in her chair all night. She was like, I couldn't lay in bed. I had to make things right. That's true repentance. True repentance. We should have an uneasy feeling in the pit of our stomachs when we sin against God. We should be physically uncomfortable with our sin. Verse 3. My soul is also sore vexed, but thou, O Lord, how long? This sorrow goes beyond the physical. His soul is sore vexed or sorely pained. He feels, he feels his pain on the inside. It's causing physical discomfort. It's causing spiritual discomfort. There's genuine sorrow of heart going on. Repentance is more than just feeling bad about something. You understand that? You can feel bad about something and not be repentant. Let me give you an example. Judas Iscariot. I think he truly felt bad about betraying Jesus. Evidenced by his going out and hanging himself. But he wasn't repentant for doing it. He didn't have godly sorrow for doing it. There's a lot of people who go to church and they might respond to an altar call and they get all stirred up in their emotions through the preaching and they feel some sorrow like, oh, I feel so bad. I've sinned and I shouldn't have sinned. And they go forward and they say a prayer. They tell God they're sorry. That's all it is. They're just, they're just, they feel so, they feel bad in that moment. But there's no deep sorrow of heart over it. So what happens? They go back to it when they leave the building. Right back to their sin. Maybe for a little while they'll reform themselves, but for the most part, right back to their sin again. Why? Because it doesn't really affect their spirit. There's no deep sorrow of heart. When we sin against God, there should be a deep sorrow of heart. There should be a deeply broken heart on our part. I feel we're much too casual today in our repentance. I am. Sometimes I'll sin and I'll catch it. And I'll just whisper off a few words and say, Lord, I'm sorry for that. I'll go about my business. But then in those quiet moments where I'm sitting and reflecting and meditating on the day, I'll sit and I'll think, what? I really should have felt more sorrow over that sin. Like now that I'm thinking about it, I feel bad. And I go back to the Lord, I make another confession, and this one's a genuine confession, because now it's, it's pierced to my heart. Now I'm like, why did I do that? Why did I say that? Why did I think that at that moment? What's wrong with me? Lord, I'm sorry for that. Lord, I draw that sorrow of heart, and that brings true repentance. That's why it's so important to have time to sit and reflect and meditate on the Lord. Because it's so easy to just kind of flippantly, Lord, I'm sorry, Lord, I'm sorry, Lord, I'm sorry. But the sorrow doesn't really pierce through to the place where it changes us. Repentance is more than just feeling bad. It brings a deep sorrow of spirit that also affects the body as well. 
And then he asked suddenly, how long? It's not clear the reference here. There's a few possible explanations. How long until you heal me? That is, how long will I feel this way? How long until you comfort me? How long until you raise me back up again? Or he could be saying, how long will you withdraw yourself from me? Sometimes in our sin, church, God withdraws his presence from us. Have you ever noticed that before? Have you ever sinned and you feel so far from God? David had those moments. He could be saying, Lord, how long will you stay? How long till you come back and I can feel your presence again? Or he could be asking you, Lord, how long will you be angry with me? There could be other references in view, but I think those are the basic ones. One important point is, regardless of what David's asking here, he's putting the ball in God's court. It's up to the Lord. I, I, once again, he's making no demands. He think, Lord, you have every right to punish me, but I'm asking you, please don't punish me. I've been punished. My body aches from my sorrow. My spirit aches from my sorrow. So any of these questions, David's not making demands. He's saying, I, I, okay, Lord, I confessed. I demand you come and be near me now. Right? No, he's saying, how long, O Lord, until you come near me again? How long will you stay away? How long until I feel your comforting presence? How long until you heal me? He's not saying, all right, Lord, I confess. Now you better bind up my wounds and get me all cheerful again. He's not making demands. Lord, I confess. Now you have to stop being angry with me. No, no, he's asking, how long, Lord? How long, oh Lord? He's not demanding of God, but inquiring of him. True repentance makes no demands. Verse number four. Return, O Lord, deliver my soul. O save me for thy mercy's sake. David begins by calling God to return. It would seem that to some degree God had withdrawn himself from David. And David noticed a difference. Would you notice a difference? There are a lot of people in the world who profess Christianity wouldn't notice the difference if God were there or not. I hope you would. I hope you fellowship with Christ. I hope you have a relationship in which you would notice if his presence was withdrawn from you. I think it's a sad thing for us today that God can withdraw his fellowship from us. We don't even notice it. Just another day. More than anything, David wanted unhindered fellowship with God. He wanted to feel the nearness and the fellowship of Christ. The Bible teaches that we can grieve the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 4.30. We can grieve the Holy Spirit with our sin. We can quench the Spirit, 1 Thessalonians 5.19. He goes on in verse 4 to say, Deliver my soul. To David, this lack of fellowship with God and these pains he felt, both internal and external, led him to feel as though he were dying. He's crying out, Lord, save me. And he is. He's drowning in sorrow. He's so brokenhearted over his sin. He 
He felt such a deep sorrow over his sins that it was like he would die if God didn't intervene. This isn't a take-it-or-leave-it repentance. This isn't a mindless, I'm sorry, God. I mean, this is a deep, deep pit that David's in. And in despair, he cries out like a drowning man. Lord, save me. Deliver me. In the last part of the verse, he appeals to God's mercy. If you forgive me, don't do it because I deserve it, but because you're merciful. Again, true repentance makes no demands. God, save me for the sake of your mercy. God, save me to magnify your mercy. To make much of yourself, save me. He's not appealing to his own worth, but to God's worth. Verse 5, For in death there is no remembrance of thee in the grave. Who shall give thee thanks? We've read this verse before. It's used by proponents of soul sleep. What we don't have here is a theological statement on what could happen after death. It's the problem with the Bible is a lot of people take a verse of the Bible that's not meant to be theological and they take it and they take it by itself and they say, here's the, the Bible teaches this happens after death. This verse is not, David's not giving us a lesson on what happens after death. He's crying out in repentance to God. We need to understand that, first of all. What we have here is an underdeveloped view of death. Can I give you guys a little bit of help here? Old Testament saints had very little knowledge of the afterlife. You know why? Because nobody had died and come back from the dead yet, like Jesus has. They have a very limited scope of what to expect. So when you look at the Old Testament, don't take their statements as theological evidence. So we do that with uh, things like Ecclesiastes. What a horrible book to use for doctrine. The whole book of Ecclesiastes is one man writing about the life from a worldly man's perspective. So when you take Ecclesiastes to establish doctrine, you're establishing doctrine according to a worldly man. That's embarrassing. Don't do that. David's not making a theological statement that, well, when I go to the grave, I'll be asleep in my body so I can't praise you anymore. That's not what he's saying. I think that they did have a concept there was consciousness after death. And we see that even in David's life, don't we? After he's seen with Bathsheba and the baby dies, what does David do? He cleans himself up, eats food, stops mourning, puzzles everybody in the, in the, in the palace. Why aren't, you worried? Why aren't you weeping anymore? Well, when he was alive, I thought perhaps the Lord would show mercy. But now that he's dead, he can't come back to me. I'll go to him. I'll go to him. If he means I'm going to sleep in my body and he's going to sleep in his body for a couple thousand years, I think he'd still be mourning and weeping and fasting and covering himself with dirt. David had an expectation that he would go to his son and know and see his son in the afterlife. And that brought peace to David. 
What David is expressing in verse 5 is the fact that others won't hear of his praises. Who will hear his thanksgiving to the Lord among the dead? Praises were for the living. Others would hear of God's deliverance, but if David died, they wouldn't. Verse 6. I'm weary with my groaning. All the night I make my bed to swim. I water my couch with tears. We see in this verse a great deal of the sorrow in David's heart. He is weary with his groaning. The word actually means moaning. It implies loud moaning. In other words, he's been crying out to God all night. And I was weary from it, he says. I've, I've been crying all night. This isn't like crying like, you know, you hear a nice hymn and you have a little tear running down your cheek. I mean, this is like ugly crying. This is like buckets and buckets of tears, mascara running down his face, crying. I don't know David wore mascara. You don't know he didn't, so. <clears throat> He's been crying and crying out to God all night. I don't know what David did to sin. I don't. Can I be honest with you? I've never had a sorrow over my sin. I was awake crying and screaming out to God all night. I take it this was a very grievous sin that David, or maybe he just felt his sin more than I do. I don't know. He's weary from his crying. He's physically tired from the moaning that he's been doing due to his grief. He makes his bed to swim. He waters his couch with tears. Verse 7, mine eye is consumed because of grief. It waxes old because of all my enemies. We don't know if it was from sickness or stress or Simply the extended time of crying, but David's grief caused his eyesight to fail. The real cause, though, is his own sin. And David needs to give his eyes off of his sin and on to God. Verse 8. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity, for the Lord hath heard the voice of my weeping. Here the psalm suddenly changes tune, doesn't it? His crying, his begging, his couch swimming with tears. And now he's emboldened. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity, for the Lord hath heard the voice of my weeping. David is now confident the Lord has heard and answered his prayer. God would now draw near and come to his defense. The enemies here are probably enemies who mocked David because of his sin. They held up his sin as a, a, an example against him. He's the king. He's in a position of high visibility. I'm sure when he sinned, his enemies used that against him. Verse 9, the Lord hath heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. David has great confidence in the Lord's grace and mercy. We know, don't we? We know more than David about God's mercy, don't we? See, we live after the cross. 
we should have much greater confidence in God's mercy than David did. But you notice that confidence in God's mercy and pride in our sin are not the same thing. So the problem today is we don't have confidence in God's mercy, we have pride in our sin. So, well, I can sin all I want to. I'm once saved, always saved. <laughs> Doesn't matter if I sin, I'm going to heaven because I got my ticket punched. Say, oh, well, they're just confident in God's... No, they're not. They're boastful in their sin. They're using salvation as a cloak to sin. It's not what David did. David didn't sin because he could. And by the way, David knew something of salvation. Because remember, it was in Romans chapter 4, where Paul talks about David talking about the blessedness of the one to whom God does not count sin. David knew that God did not count his sin against him. And yet when he sinned against God, he cried out for mercy because he was so broken up over his own sin and depravity. Today we use salvation as a license to sin. That's not the same thing as what David's doing. David didn't sin because he could. David sinned because he was a sinner. And then it broke his heart. And he spent all night crying and calling out. He sinned and then got physically sick over his sin. Listen, we should have great confidence in the mercy and grace of God when we do sin. But don't ever sin assuming God's going to forgive you. Man, we've heard it so many times in abortion clinics. God will forgive me. God will forgive me. They presume upon God's forgiveness. Listen, if you sin presuming on God's forgiveness, you're not going to receive God's forgiveness. Well, I'll, I'll sin and I'll ask forgiveness later. If you're sinning presuming to ask forgiveness, you're not really repentant later. That's a sign and a symptom that you're not repentant at all. It's false repentance. If you're truly repentant, you won't do it. You'll stop before you sin. Go to 1 John chapter 1. Written to Christians. First John chapter 1, verse number 6. The Bible says here, If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. There is no fellowship with Christ for those who walk in darkness. Do you understand what I'm saying? When we sin, we lose the presence of God in our lives. I'm not saying you're not saved. I'm not saying you lose your salvation. I'm not saying the Holy Spirit is taken away from you. But there is a certain fellowship that you and I have with Christ through the Holy Spirit that we do not have when we're walking disorderly or in sin. We cannot fellowship with him and walk in darkness. There is a broken fellowship with God when we sin. Do you feel that? You should. I should. That should affect us, church. When that fellowship is broken, 
We should know it right away. And that that should lead us to repentance. Verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Fellowship with Christ comes from walking in the light with him. Now, does this mean we can never sin? No. Verse 9. I'm sorry, verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. I'm not saying you have to walk perfectly, because you can't. We're going to sin. We're going to break fellowship with Christ in our sin. But God's made provision for that. Verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's how we draw ourselves back into fellowship with Christ. We confess our sins. And I mean confess the way David did. Lord, how long till you return to me? Lord, how long do I have to feel this way? Lord, how long will you be angry with my sin? Lord, you have every right to punish me, but I'm asking you for mercy. That means we confess our sins not to get out of the punishment of sin, but because we are truly heartbroken over it. Because we are sick over it. God, I sinned. I'm so sick to my stomach, I can't believe I sinned against you again. Go back to Psalm 6. Psalm 6. When we sin, there's broken fellowship with God. And we're going to sin. And the answer, the provision God has made is to confess. That is to draw near to God. What David is doing here in this psalm is what we need to do on a regular basis. Draw near to God. Confess that sin. Look at verse 10. Let all my enemies be ashamed and sore vexed. Let them return and be ashamed suddenly. David says his enemies will be ashamed. God is merciful and forgives. David's accusers can keep holding his sin before him, but God's already forgiven him. Listen, your enemies, your accusers, your detractors, will, if you, if you sin and they know about it, they're going to use that against you. But if you've truly confessed your sin, God has forgiven you. Remember that. It doesn't matter what man holds against you. It doesn't matter what devils hold against you. What God has, listen, who, what is it? Uh, there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Right? Who can condemn? It's God who justifies. If God is forgiven, then nobody can accuse. What we see here tonight is true Repentance. Sin should bring true sorrow to the Christian. I mean genuine sorrow. This sorrow should be deeply felt. It should affect us physically and spiritually. It should make you sick to your stomach when you sin against God. It should create a a cry of the heart when you sin against God. It should produce sorrow in us. True repentance never makes demands because it knows it's guilty. All it can do is throw itself at the mercy of God. True repentance will always be accepted by the Lord. 
and you and I, as David has here, we have solid ground for confidence that when we repent, the Lord forgives us and draws near to us again. At the end of the, or the beginning of the psalm, David, David's crying out and he's sorrow and he's crying and he's moaning and he's physically weak. How long, oh Lord, he's crying out. And then by the end, he's like telling his enemies, depart from me. God's forgiven me. God's here. God will defend me. True repentance, true repentance brings sorrow. But that sorrow is short-lived. It should give way to confidence. You know the problem with some people is they go on for years, they confess their sin, and they go on for years holding themselves guilty for their sin over and over again. That means they don't have true repentance. They have worldly repentance. Like Judas who drove him to suicide. True repentance has solid ground to have confidence that the Lord forgives and draws near again. When you sin, church, and you will sin, and I will sin, we need to learn the principles of true repentance. Then we confess and we forsake our sin, and Christ, who has withdrawn his spirit, will come and fellowship with us once again. And the nice thing about repentance is God never brings it up again. The next time you sin or I sin, he doesn't go, you know what? I'm getting tired of this. This is the 13th time this year. No, he doesn't. It's as if it's the first time all over again. And he forgives us again and again and again. And he comes near and he fellowships with us again and again and again. I'm so thankful for the Lord's restoration of his people. He loves us. He never punishes his people to be retributive. Is that the right word? Retributive? He has already punished our sins in Jesus. He only disciplines to correct and to draw us back into fellowship. But if we will come first and repent, there's no need for him to do that. Draw near to God. That space he gives you to repent, don't be emboldened to sin. Use that to draw near to God. If we draw near to God, God will draw near to us. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for this time in the Word this evening. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see the importance of true repentance, Lord. It makes no demands. It, it's not self-serving or self-seeking. It's simply throws itself with the mercy of God, and boy, we have a merciful God. I'm so thankful for the mercies of the Lord. I'm thankful they're new every morning. I'm thankful you forgive us for the same sin over and over again. You never bring up our past. You never hold it over our head. Thank you for your kindness to us, Lord. May we walk with you in light and fellowship. And when we do sin, Lord, may we not be emboldened to go on in that sin. But may our hearts cry out for the fellowship of the Spirit.
Help us to always seek to restore. Lord, we love you. Bless us now. Be with the sick in the church, of course. Heal each and every one. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.